0: what is up podheads? back with another episode of the patio slave podcast my name is tony i am here with anthony and nate and uh five in a row guys cool conversations with different folks from around the industry this is it number five damn how do we keep doing this i mean if you count rob it's probably like seven but <laughs> holy shit anthony nate how you doing
1: Nerdery, nerdy never sleeps man so i'm doing great i'm doing
2: well how about you I'm doing good, man. And a peek behind the curtain. When you have guests on, you have to think of the guests. You have to source the guests. You have to coordinate our schedules with their, their schedules. You have to think of a concept or a theme, questions, et cetera, et cetera. It helps when you've lived it, you know? But either way, it's a lot of work. So I think we're at like five in a row, as you said. Damn. And we get day jobs. We, you know, we're, we got families. God damn. It's a lot of work, but we love it. We choose to do this without getting paid. So we do, go.
0: yeah. Well, we get a couple bucks a month. We appreciate everybody who who does give us that. But you're right. It's a lot of work, but it's also stuff that we'd probably be texting back and forth to each other anyway. Instead, we get to have people like Chris Ren on to talk about it with them. So pretty pretty wild to be able to do that again tonight with another person that you know we've had on our list of people we wanted to talk to from probably from the jump of the podcast, especially for you, Tuan. I mean, you've lived the bridge nine days the whole time. So pretty cool stuff.
2: I'm an alumni of the bridge nine board. Uh, we've lived the releases from what I think the first release I think I ever heard from bridge nine was outbreaks. You make a sick, which may come into play here later in the episode, but we've been hooked ever since. Yeah. Chris founded the label in 95. I mean, we're talking 28 years ago. You might know him from the Sully's brand tees, Sully's brand Yankees suck t-shirts. I can't relate to that, that uh, term, but, but they Tony, do. Uh,
0: <laughs> but they suck. Yankees do suck.
2: And we, I mean, we don't get into the history of the label, but a lot of those early bridge nine releases were funded by Sully's tees. It, it was him hawking t-shirts outside of Fenway, outside of Lansdowne. Like Chris is a guy that has put in the work and, uh, I mean, we'll get into how this conversation came about here in a second, but this was a fun one. And Nate, you've seen Bridge9Bands over the
1: years, so how was it to chat with, with Chris? This is, a, this is a phenomenal conversation for, for mul- uh, multiple reasons, but the brick-by-brick brick work ethic stick-to-your-guns storyline that he provided to us is uh, unparalleled. I mean, it's just it gives us hope. It It makes you realize that if you really believe in something that you can make a go of it and between the t-shirts and the, and the records and now his brick and mortar store going against the grain from what we all thought was, uh, you know, a dying art. Uh, he proved us all wrong and proved the world wrong and continues to, to make it happen and works with some of the biggest bands in the scene and discovers bands before they're big and, and everything in between. So, um, phenomenal conversation, really cool guy. Yeah. We're going to get into some of our favorite bridge nine records over the years here with, uh,
2: Chris Ren. Let's go. All right, we are here with the mayor of Boston Hardcore, the only person on this Zoom call right now that's ever jumped off the balcony during a Hate Breed music video shoot, the guy that's pissed off more Yankees fans, myself included, than David Ortiz, and the guy responsible for half of my record collection, which is right behind me, the one, the only Chris Wren
3: that was a solid intro how was that was that good yeah four stars man thank you was it all was it all accurate i yeah i think so definitely (laughs) pissed off a lot of yankees fans and put out a lot of records over 300 which is wild
0: so i'm wearing a a celtics hat so you're in you're in good company and nate's (laughs) uh nate's a celtics and red sox fan too so we're we're good there just anthony that's the yankee fan for uh, family reasons, right? I mean, I'm the weirdo that
2: lives up in Maine that jocks the Yankees. So figure that out. It yeah. <laughs> So Chris, we uh, we've been in the same room. I could go through my list of shows probably 200 times over the last 20 years. We've never met uh, until a couple months ago. I saw you at the Newfound Glory show, acoustic joint down in Somerville back in March. I approached you, I think after a couple drinks, and I was like, "Hey." I got a proposal for you. And you're like, uh, okay, (laughs) to come on the podcast. So uh, here you are.
3: Yeah, no, I thank you for coming up and saying, saying what's up with that show. And I mean, dude, you got, you got to go out, got to go talk to people. I mean, there's been so many times where I've been in your shoes and it's like, oh man, I really want to do something. I don't know this person or whatever. And you just walk up and and things happen. So thank you.
2: And that's the thing. You never know how someone's going to react if they're just saying yes to say yes in the moment. But we had a cool conversation talking about Newfound Glory, talking about the label, talking about music. So I think this is a natural progression to that. And the idea that I pitched to you was, hey, we love the catalog. It runs deep. Let's pick five. We're not even going to tell you what records they are. Pick five records that we love from the catalog and just talk about them, how it all came together, the time frame, the impact, what we love about them. And so that's what we're going to do. All right. So the first one we're jumping in because it's fitting, Chris, is uh, New Found Glory, Tip of the Iceberg EP, which was paired with International Superheroes, the Hardcore, taking it over. So we'll start with a little backdrop. So we love NFG. They had the coming home release on, I think it was like Geffen before that, which was a departure record for them. They come back, swing over the fences with this EP, which for both fans of NFG and your label, it was like, did not see this coming, but it worked. So first question, how'd this all come about? Do you know the guys? Like, what were those initial conversations like?
3: Yeah. So it it started out as a chance, um, a chance meeting in Australia of all places. So I was on tour with Champion in 2004 And right I forget what city we were in, but Newfound Glory was starting their own tour in Australia the next day and whatever, so we were all in the same city, they saw that there was an American hardcore band playing down the street, and they just came out to the show, which was, I mean, cool. I mean, they could have done whatever, but they wanted to come out, and they said hello to everyone in the band. We connected, talked music a little bit, and stayed in touch. You know, I mean, this is one of those things where I had never met any of those guys. Um, You know, we had mutual friends, had, like, crossover, but had never met, and they just said, what's up at a show? And, and then... uh. Actually, shortly after Chad had asked if I would be interested in maybe doing something with international superheroes because they had already recorded that. Oh, right on. I think they had done that, you know, kind of like piggybacked that on a on another recording session. And I think at the time, so this was probably 2005. I felt like putting out kind of a joke Hardcore band was not the move for me because I think I was just too serious and I didn't want. I didn't want. I mean, I think Good Clean Fun, I think had. I was going to say Good
2: Clean Fun, yeah.
3: You know, I mean, as 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 fun and whatever as and and I mean, obviously, Good Clean Fun was a people love that band for a, a little while, but I think the, the joke got old after a while. And I think when I was talking to Chad about ISHC, I just wasn't sure. I felt like I was still trying to kind of define what I was doing, and I it didn't feel like the right fit at that moment. Fast forward like two years, they had, they didn't do anything with it. It was kind of like sitting on the back burner, and. Chad was tapped to produce the H2O Nothing Approved album. So That's this right. was yeah. 2007. So it was like two years later. And so we're talking again. And at that time, he asked, uh, you know, would you be into doing uh, a newfound Glory 7-inch but with some cover songs, you know, they, that they were going to do? And uh, I was like, yeah, I mean, I would definitely be down to do that. But what are the chances of doing a couple original songs too? Like make it more than just like oh, yeah, a two or three song 7-inch? And basically it turned into like a 20 song, you know, or whatever. Like it was the, it was cover songs, original songs, and then the ISHE album all together as one. So, and then that came out in 2008.
2: I remember buying the CD and it was one of those slim double, double albums that you had to, you know, kind of roll the, the jewel case back, you know, versus like the notorious B.I.G. ready to die, like thick, thick album.
0: Yeah so you had been approached about it earlier so obviously you knew it existed uh what what was kind of the switch that changed your mind you're like all right let's let's do this this is exciting
3: you know i i think we just we had put out another 40 records uh by that point i was starting to mix it up a little bit more uh, i had introduced you know some more melodic bands whether it was h2o or crime and stereo or ambitions kind of around that same time and it just seemed like at that moment it was it was something that you know could work you know when i had 50 records out i felt like you know i don't know i just i felt like i was kind of staying in my lane and when you do a label you know you kind of like you have your your niche and then you keep doing it and then you want to kind of build off that. you just kind of you know you don't want to do the same thing all over and over and over again so um after a while you start to get interested in doing other stuff. And I think that's when that, that happened.
1: So when you guys were, I guess, coming together to work on this, was there some, some really kind of collective conversations on the sound, like how we want this to sound together or were they, were they, did they have their minds already kind of made up and they kind of ran with it?
3: So we didn't weigh in on what it was going to sound like at all. It, that's completely up to them, you know, and I, but I, I think they knew that they were bringing something to a hardcore label and you know, whether or not they wanted to play a little faster, a little harder, kind of lean into, you know, what our catalog kind of sounded like. Maybe, you know, that, that influenced them, but they was all them.
2: And they definitely did. Like, I remember the Dig My Own Grave video with, like, the baseball bats and stuff and, you know, there's some, some breakdowns in there. And they had breakdowns, right? I mean, and then they, I think they took the momentum from this EP to Not Without a Fight, which I think was on Epitaph. That had some heavier elements, like even heavier than some of the Catalyst stuff and the Sticks and Stones, like under you know the the well known understatement breakdown. So it's it's interesting. Like if this EP didn't happen, what would Not Without a Fight even sound like, you know?
3: And and what would the trajectory of Bridge Nine have been? You know that that record coming out brought so many new kids into what we were doing that summer because that came out in the summer of two thousand eight, and it was just. When we had uh, H2O's new album came out in April, uh, Newfound Glory came out in May. And then that summer, it was Have Hearts Song, Scream at the Sun, uh, Verse, Aggression, uh, Ceremony, Still Nothing Moves You. I mean, it was, and then we had Cruel Hand and Energy as well. Like it was, we had a lot going on. But when kids came to buy that Newfound Glory record, it's not like they, they came, bought it, and pieced back out. They stayed. So, like our mail order, sales went from existing around here you know like kind of like this kind of lower level like kind of average level down here and just skyrocketed with newfound glory and every month after that stayed that high so wow, it was crazy that's it was awesome. a huge opportunity for us to reach a lot of new people a lot of people have said to me in the years since like that was a gateway for them you mm-hmm. know to to kind of like learn about all the other bands that we were working with so they kind they came and
0: they stayed that's cool and Probably not something that you expected to happen. Maybe not to that level. Maybe you thought, all right, cool. Some people will come through the door because of this. And then we'll have, you know, some of them will stay because that's what happens. You you end up hearing something you like and then, oh, let's let's dig in a little more here. I mean, we we do that stuff all the time with different, you know, different bands, different genres. But for it to stay that way, like that, that's pretty wild.
3: Yeah.
1: Timing wise, too, I don't think it could have happened at a better time if it happened. Call it 10 years earlier, it may not have had the same effect. So, timing's everything, right? So,
3: yeah. And we still got, you know, our a fair amount of flack from people that, you know, that kind of were gatekeeping and thought, like, why are you putting out a pop punk record or a pop punk band? I mean, it was, there was, I, I mean, these were the people in Newfound Gloria, All the guys in the band were hardcore fans, you know. I mean, they were repping hardcore bands, you know, even on their major label releases, whether it was promoting Bane, you know, obviously Chad's involvement with Shy of was well, a
2: episode chad's yeah, cribs episode you, yeah, you so the, today seven inch and all that shit yeah. biscuits
3: 12 inch you know like i mean they it was they, they've they always loved hardcore and for so it was a natural you know progression to work with us and i mean even since i mean look they just did stuff with triple b recently they've given back more than than pretty much any band that i've that, that hits that level um uh, that i've seen so it's it's very cool of them
2: well and the relationship continued right because you did the NFG shy halud split. You did kill it live, uh, live release. They played the new bridge nine warehouse, not without a fight. I think you pressed right.
3: We did the vinyl for that for Episcaph. We did. I did what's eating Gilbert on seven inch. Oh, that's right, Chad. We did a uh, the mania twelve inch. That was the Ramones covers. You know, so I mean, we I think we had like eleven different releases that were all either newfound glory or you know adjacent, and that was. You know, from two thousand eight to probably what, like two thousand sixteen or so, two thousand seventeen, I think. And then, yeah, I mean, they so they actually came and did an autograph signing when we did the Kill a Live record at our old office. Um, I mean, they could have done that anywhere, but they did it in this industrial complex. You know, like that was hard (laughs) to find. It was, it was very cool. And we had like a photo booth, so they took photos with fans. And then, yeah, uh, in March this year, they they played our warehouse. It was crazy. I mean, they had a nine hundred capacity show like theater the somerville theater in march you know played almost a thousand people but that afternoon they came and played in our warehouse as our our first band to play here so that was super cool
0: right that opened when did you open that so the store
3: opened last september so we've been open about i don't know seven or so months eight months and the the warehouse uh, officially opened in march so we had, you know, rushed to open the store because we were, you know, bleeding money, like renovating and getting the space open. So we wanted to be able to have the store open and still working on kind of building out the back warehouse area. Mm-hmm. And we were basically able to get it open enough for Newfound Glory.
0: Was that something that you had like an idea to do or were they were like, hey, let's do this. And you're like, all right, we're going to make this happen.
3: Yeah, no. So I, I wanted to have bands perform in our warehouse from the get go. Uh, I built everything on caster wheels so we can just part the seat and just kind of open the whole space as much as nice. we can awesome. and have a, you know, we have a, a, a drum riser in the back and we can just set a band up on the floor and, and, you know, put as many kids as we can in there. That was, that was something that i would wanted to do for a while. But when I saw that they played a record store in California on this tour, the, their acoustic tour, I just reached out to chat and I said, Hey, you know, I saw you guys did that really cool show program would you consider doing something on the East coast when you guys come out here? Nice. And the Somerville That's show, awesome. When, yeah. When, when I reached out to him, so the Somerville show sold out immediately. So that, I mean, when you go to a band and say, Hey, look, your show that night is already sold out. So there's no conflict. Would you be down to do something? And he, he's, he's like, yeah, let me check with the guys. And a few days later, hit me up. He's like, yeah, let's do it. You know? And it was, it, it really was, it was the coolest thing.
2: I, I I was working the day that I think it was like a couple of days before something that was announced and you had to I think go to the warehouse to buy the record. Yep. And I was working and I was like and I live, you know, 2 hours north. I was like I kind of want to do it, but I kind of have responsibility. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's it it's sold out pretty quick. We we worked with Revelation uh who pressed the the new album to make a special cover for it and we we bought 100 copies of the record and basically that was the admission you come buy the record and you you know a few days later you get to come back and see the show
1: i think the coolest part about this whole concept because i was actually going to bring up programs uh surf and skate or skate and sound is like that flipped the whole like live nation formula on it said and then the other way around record label, call it Epic Records. What you flipped that on, on its set. like, there's no formula. You guys just kind of like paved your own way. And I can see this replicating, you know, long form.
3: Yeah. And the hope is, I mean, I, we're not a venue, but I would like to be able to, if I could put a band in the warehouse that doesn't like that's too big to play a warehouse, but would be willing to do it maybe once a month, I would be stoked. So we actually have one lined up for June and another one lined up for July and another potential one for for August, uh, for September, actually, that are all kind of the same thing where they're like, and then newfound glory is a tough act to follow, but, um, you know, bands that probably wouldn't be in a warehouse at this point, but are down to
1: do it. That's cool because routing wise, like for a tour, I think that you have to be spaced out radius wise and like seven months have to go by before you can like book a show in the same, you know, geographic or whatever, but this is I mean, basically it's considered like an in-store, right? Or it is. Yeah. And, and
3: nice. it's also... It is uh, something that we usually, well, we'll un, we won't really announce it, right? So, like, with Newfound Glory, it was, like, six days before the show. We announced it, sold it out within two or three days, you know, again, because people had to come and do it and 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 buy the record. And then they came back on the following Thursday. So, that's probably a similar thing where, where you know, we, we actually we tried to have Terror come and do it last month. But the show that they were supporting, the tour they were on, we just fell short of selling out. So. You know, it's it's one of those things where, yeah, in that case, the kind of the, the radius clause would kick in. But if the show sells out, then, you know, it's more the merrier.
2: All right. We love NFG. We could talk NFG all goddamn day. Like, <laughs> yeah, I have yeah. every release they've put out since it's all about the girls EP back here. So let's move it on. Frank Turner, cool. alumni of the podcast, Beverly 7-Inch, which came out last year, which was part of, you know, your efforts to, you know, get the brick and mortar label warehouse and everything going the brick and mortar store and the backstory is pretty cool. We read, we read up on it and you'll have to actually, why don't Chris, why don't you give the backstory?
3: Yeah. So, so Frank Turner is one, I mean, he's an artist that I've been a fan of, I don't know, probably since 2007, 2008, maybe I I think probably around that time. And I tried to sign him in
2: 2009. Really? You you heard it first. Yeah. MTV News. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Polar Bear Club was uh on tour with him and they were they were both on a like support slots uh in England. And so I think we were either in Frank Turner's van or they were or he was in Polar Bear Club's van. I can't remember. But I was basically just I mean, we were just talking about sick of it all, nerding out about music, and uh and we were just asked if he'd be down to do a record on Bridge Nine because I know he has his label in England, but like you know, we'd be down to license it and do something in, in North America or in the U.S. And we tried. We talked about it for a little bit after that, but of course, he had a really incredible opportunity with Epitaph, so there was no no hurt feelings over that. But I was just always a huge fan. I mean, and 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 a lot of bands. Like when you're a label, and you know, sometimes it's hard. You know, if if, if something doesn't work out, but man, I just every time he came to Boston, I would go. And in 2000, so 2000. Nine that actually that summer, I think it was a few months after I talked to him in England. He was playing Fitchburg, you know, in Massachusetts and was supporting the offspring. And our friend Matt Pike, who's a booking agent and uh, lived in Beverly at the time, offered to pick him up and drive him back to his place, uh, Frank, and a couple of people that were going to stay at the Pikes house that night. So when he picked him up, he asked Frank if. Would be down to maybe uh, do not do, do another set, but like play for his friends, right? So Matt hit me up basically everyone from the bridge Nine camp from the Death Wish camp, uh, you know three of the guys from Converge, um, There there's probably about twenty of us and like our you know significant others at at Pike's house when Frank showed up with Matt, just waiting. Um, in fact, there was a a kid uh, uh, this guy, Chris, that I've become friends with since that uh, just randomly. Answered uh on, an, an ad on Twitter basically, like I, I don't know if it was Frank or somebody was like, Hey, if you want to see Frank Turner and Beverly, come wow. to this address. Wow. And he was he was the only one that he showed up. You know, and it's Imagine funny doing he, that
0: today. Imagine putting that out there today. Like
3: uh, no, it, it's, it's funny because his his uh girlfriend at the time, I think his wife, was like, You're gonna die. Like you're just gonna show up at somebody's house. And he did. Times have changed. He has lifelong friends because of it. Like he you know, he he showed up. Frank was down to perform. I don't remember how many songs he did, maybe, you know, eight or so, but it was the most intimate of experiences. You know, it was basically in in Pike's backyard. I think it was like a garage that they had converted into kind of like a hangout space. And he performed in front of, you know, in front of everybody. And um, I had brought a a digital video camera with me just to try and not even to like do it. I mean, I filmed parts of his set, but not everything. And in hindsight, I was bummed because like I was turning it off in between, you know, during songs. And I I think we had maybe, I think the four that we pressed were like the four songs that I fully had from start to finish. So, you know, all those I think I had two tapes from from that show. They just ended up in a shoebox or in a file cabinet for, you know, 12 years, I think. And it's you know, one of those things as a label. And as the the person that kind of has you, you kind of create an archive and you hold on to things. I've never had to really throw a lot of things out. I've kept so many yeah. things from over the years, thankfully, and so stuff like that it just gets shoved away until you have to do something like move and then go through everything and get organized and when I was trying to figure out how to handle moving because it was sudden, it was also during the beginning of covid and Everything business wise was kind of up and you know, upside down a little bit. So, I came up with the idea of doing what I called the Read the Archive Mystery Box. And it was, you know, we had done mystery boxes in the past that were very successful. I mean, who can resist the mystery box? Right, you had li- no you idea. Know. It's like it's yeah, people- Christmas. I'm a yeah,
2: satisfied alumni of that program.
3: <laughs> Amazing. Well, yeah, people people like them, so we're like, all right, let's do let's take it a step further because we had done. These mystery seven inches over the years, a bunch of them, like twenty of them. So I said, let's press like five records, things that have never been on vinyl, and and you know some things that are completely from the archive, like you know the uh, the Crown and Stereo BBC session. We had four songs that they recorded, and you know I think it was two thousand eight or nine that had never been released anywhere. So we're like, all right, let's let's you know let's press that on seven inch. Let's do you know, the uh, Terror Live in Japan. I think Trustkill had tacked some of those songs on a, that, on a CD, you know, at one point, but it had never been released as its own 12-inch, and I had photos from that tour. It's like, let's make something cool out of it and sell, kind of celebrate it as its own separate thing. And with Frank, I went ahead and took the four songs, had them mastered and sequenced, and sent them to him and said, and basically told him what was going on, said, you know, we're... We're we're moving, we're building this new, you know, warehouse and record store. And we're putting, we're pulling these records together to, to help us kind of fundraise for it because again, it was sudden, it was very expensive and it was, uh, it was a way where, you know, the artists could help support us, but then also, you know, customers and fans and people that are into the stuff that we've done. It's like an easy thing. It's like, all right, you know, for 50 bucks or 55 bucks, you have five records and my feeling was these are going to resonate with people that are into that like 2003 to 2009 period. Frank was kind of the outlier because you know he had never been on the label and it was you know a little bit of a different kind of sound than the rest of the records that were in the package but that was one that was probably my favorite one because first off he was like yeah sure let's you know go for it. We ended up pressing I think 200 copies for him to take on tour so you know he he got something out of it but he, I mean, he was just like, yeah, go for it. And he could have said no for like any number of legitimate reasons. He had a new album coming sure. out right around the same time, you know, all these other things. But he heard me out and was like, yeah, do it. Let's cool, you know, let's let's go for it. That show, and I, it's I know it's an official show on his show discography. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> it was, it, really? <laughs> it is. Yeah, it was, it's he show counts number. them all,
0: man. He counts them yeah. all.
3: <laughs> that was show number six hundred and sixty-two, and. It was completely spontaneous. Um, I don't think he knew what he was walking into. And a little fun fact about that show was, uh, Converge is one of his favorite bands. I think mm-hmm. he's gone on record a couple of times uh, as saying, like, that's like that. That's his. He celebrates the whole catalog. And when he walked in uh, and saw three members of Converge there in the audience, I guess he fanboyed. In fact, there's a photograph that we just put on our discography. So we have been going through and. Adding content and you know, photos and flyers and ads and stuff related to every record that I can I into our discography, and I, I kind of filled out the Frank uh, Frank Turner Beverly page with twenty or so photos taken that night of of everyone that nice. was there, him performing. But there's a picture of him, I guess that was taken by this guy Evan, who was on the tour with him, right when he saw Conver- the members of Converge, and he's got like this like <gasps> you know face. So it's, it's
0: cool. That's wild. I mean, you just said so many things that I'm like, I have a question about that. I have a question about that. So many. Yeah. He is so approachable though. Like we, when we were kind of early on in this, probably just over a year, like let's hit him up. Cause we all liked him. We never, you know, we never thought he'd say yes. And then we got an email back saying, yeah, what do you want to talk about? And it's just like, and I've emailed him since he's he played Portland last summer, right around now. And I took a bunch of videos, sent them to him, and he was like, those are amazing. Thank you for sending them. Like he's just that guy. Yeah. So I'm not totally. surprised he said yes to to playing in the backyard. And then I can totally see him getting excited about seeing members of a band that he loves. Because that's exactly what I would do. I'd be like, holy shit, you guys are here. Like, yeah. All right. I guess I'll play the show for you. That's that's
3: wild. I'm sure he's played lots of random, intimate shows in his in his time that one though was special uh it it was really special for me it was special for all i mean really all the people that were there and when you know for him to do that that in a lot of ways was the inspiration for what we're trying to do now with our warehouse because we want to create intimate personal experiences for people to like you know that are fans of the label that are supportive of the record store you know like yeah they're gonna you know bands are gonna go play in front of a thousand people in boston but if we can do something you know, on a smaller scale and more, more intimate here than like with newfound glory, for example, multiple people were saying that having seen them for two decades, that was their favorite time because in you know, it was a yeah. hundred people watching them or 130 or so people. And they were signing autographs and taking selfies with fans after they after they played. So like, it was this moment that I think hopefully all those people are going to be like, oh my God, like that was such a cool thing. And uh, the roots of that were with, you know, with Frank taking the time to do that in, in the backyard in Beverly. And and then for the rest of that record. So the cover of the, of the seven inch is a painting of Matt Pike's house. So that's the house that he played at. Oh, that's cool. And my, my dad actually painted that's it. Awesome. My dad's like, a oh, uh, wow. That's uh, amazing. Paints landscapes and, and buildings and old barns and like, kind of like, you know, these landscape paintings. And I was like, this isn't my first chance to do something, kind of do something with my dad involved, mm. uh, who he had never, you know, He's been very supportive of what I do with Bridge Nine, but had never really had a, a direct connection to it outside of me. So that was that was kind of a cool opportunity.
0: That's awesome. And I mean, to make that the whole thing is is like uh, bits and pieces have to happen correctly for it to even exist, and they all yep. did. And so, like, what you you have the camcorder, you're like, I'm just going to record some of this. And... Yeah, I think, I, I
3: think for whatever reason, at that time, I probably recorded a bunch of random shit. You know. I was when with Sully's I was you know I'd be filming things down at Fenway Park you know like around the stadium or you know I'd be at a show and film random things and so I've got all these random tapes and that one I uh I had exported the like the files onto my computer back then so I had these you know I had I had the tapes but I also had these you know high resolution files and was able to you know we just were lucky to do it I mean I mean the something could have happened to the files they could have you know a hard drive could have died the tapes could have right. been yeah. bad you know uh, frank could have again for any number of reasons could have said no you know it's i like the idea but i it's i got too many things going on but you know for what for whatever number of reasons it came together and we were able to put it out there
1: you just gave us the ultimate excuse to continue to collect literally everything which we've been doing for we do. we do. of 30 we do. years now and my wife yeah. does not appreciate yeah. it yeah but, uh,
0: that and ask everybody hey you want to talk
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 but again to, to going back to, to frank i don't know how he does it i feel like he's this generation's Ian McKay where he is responsive he you know if, if, if i mean if I, I see that all the time people say they just random fans reach out to him and he engages with them and a way that is admirable and I want to know how he does it because like I have trouble keeping up with things and
0: mm-hmm.
3: I, I want like I know that it's possible to respond to people because he's doing it. So I don't know what the secret is, but Frank I don't know he,
2: he must have a social media team. No, he doesn't. But it's like like Gary V, the social media guy. He's like, yeah. I respond to everything. It's like, no, you don't. You have a yeah. team, you're full of <laughs> shit. Right, right. Frank, yeah. I believe it. It's and him. like And he, I think Tony, he asked, he's like, can I post this? You know, it's like, so it's a cool way to, to get back as the artist.
0: And he, that was after they've just flew to America for the first time since the pandemic kind of started to soften, played a show in Portsmouth, New Hampshire during the day, drove to Portland, Maine, played a show that night, which we were at. I'm sure jet lagged as shit. And then email, answer my email the next day. (laughs) It's like, holy shit, like wild.
3: That 50 shows in 50 days was wild. I went to the Portsmouth show and then the Boston show. Um, but yeah, that was, that, that was crazy.
0: Awesome stuff. Yeah. We could talk Frank all night too. All right, Nate, one, <laughs> give, give us the next one.
2: <laughs> all right, Chris, this one, I'm going to, I might like break out in a sweat because I'm such a fanboy. I am the, and I've been on record saying this. I am the world's biggest crime and stereo fan certified. Yep. So we're talking is dead 2007. So we'll give a little backdrop. They were on Nitro before that with the troubled stateside hints at maybe a departure with like, um, gravity, grace, things like that. So when you guys signed them, I was like, didn't see that coming. Maybe it's a throwback to the explosives record that was on. What was that on? I can't remember.
3: Is that on Blackout?
2: It was on Blackout. Exactly. So I was like, I wonder if we're going to get Blackout too. Where are they going to go? So you sign them. So then I think the first two songs that came out were, I think, But You Are Vast and I'm drawing a blank here, but there were two songs that initially came out and I was like, this is not what I expected. It's, 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 it's not going back. It's actually leaning more into Long Island. So how did this all come about? Because this was a pivotal point for you guys. You guys, as a label, I think could have leaned more that direction after or... Or whatnot so i'm curious how it all came together
3: well so that was to the 2007 and we had i mean that same year we had death for dishonors count me in album uh which was a heavy record for us that was like i think that was our first record to break into like the billboard top 200 so that was really yeah i mean they wow. they, they really too. came out the great yeah came out of the gate uh you know hard with that i mean i remember we had like you know, we shot a music video for, for Death War of Honor. We shot a music video for Crime and Stereo. So for us as a label, those were really big moves. Um, I mean, you can shoot a music video for 500 bucks these days, but in 2007, it was a, a very significant, even at an indie level, um, expense for us. And, you know, I, I was a fan of the band. And, you know, we were in a position where we were really kind of able to invest in our bands. And I think they, they, they wanted that push. And I don't know, it was, it was a it was a great record.
2: Any talk about, like, creative direction at all? Or was this, like, a Newfound Glory thing, like, you let them cook?
3: Yeah, no, again, I mean, we've very rarely have we ever weighed in. Here and there sometimes, but really, it's, I honestly, I mean, we're we're just, it, we just let the band do their thing and then, you know, work with them on it.
2: Were you surprised at, like, what they came back with? It was uh, Vicious Teeth. I've, I'm remembering, I think it was But You Were Vast and Vicious Teeth were, like, the first two. And then... Small Skeletal, you did the video treatment for, but when, you know, they're like, you know, giving you output, are you surprised? Were you expecting like Troubled
3: Stateside part two or? No, I mean, Troubled stateside's is obviously an awesome record, but I mean, it is dead. It was just, I, it's, that's the coolest part about doing a label is when you work with an artist and then you see what comes back, right? Like, I mean, I remember when, you know, shortly after we did the, the Nothing to Prove album for, you know, for H2O and... Just hearing what happened for the first time, it's like, oh my god, like this is, it's so with Crown and Stereo. There was a, it was a lot of just like, holy shit, this is awesome, and I wait to see what happens with this band and where they go.
1: That is cool. You get to see it from base level to real output. The guy stubbed his toe. He's pissed off. Oh, dude, no wonder that song's so angry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but and they're definitely like changing at this point, right? I mean. I guess when we ask you more the question of like was there direction they were leaning, was it something that you knew was gonna happen because it's the way maybe now Bridge Nine was going to lean? I guess is more the question we're trying to ask, right, Twan? That's that's kind of the feeling there. So when you're signing bands or pulling bands in to maybe, you know, have them be on the label, do you know they're gonna go a certain direction and that's the way you wanna go? Or is it something that you're like, No, I love those guys or girls or whoever? I want to see what they have next. Let's put them, let's get them in here.
3: I think that's what it was. I know with Crime right and Stereo, it was like, we were trying, to, you know, I was trying to kind of broaden what Bridge Nine was, was known for, what we were doing. And again, I mean, all the bands that we work with and on some level are, are rooted in hardcore and punk, even if they're a band like Lemuria, Some, you know, like where it's kind of more, more melodic. But with Crime and Stereo, I knew that they were, there was a lot more melody in that band than we were traditionally known for having as a label. And again, when we put out the new found Glory record, we got flack for that. We got, we, we actually got flack for common I mean, stereo from some people from, from uh, bands like ambitions, which these were bands that had a little more melody, which I, I was, I was into. And, you know, so I, I, I we knew that there was, they were going to help push the envelope for what we were known as, as a label ultimately.
2: Yeah. Cause as like, a b9 fanboy and crime and stereo fanboy in this era like this was a pivotal time because at that point when you make the leap from death before dishonor to crime and stereo that same leap in that same direction gets you citizen and turnover and that crowd so it could have gone that way was there a temptation to go that way
3: not not necessarily and you know it's that's it's interesting because as a label, as you continue to grow and 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 move, I mean, door uh, certainly doors open, and and um, as you go through them, it, it the direction where the label goes can change quite considerably. For Bridge Nine, of you know, I never really had a like a business plan, I guess, if you will, for like how I wanted the label to sound, but I, I did want to keep things rooted in hardcore and punk, I believe, until actually until I had put out a hundred records. And I've still remained pretty true to that, but I know that I wanted to be able to say, like, look, I put out a hundred independently released hardcore punk records. Like I can do whatever the fuck I want at this point. (laughs) Um, if if you don't like that, you go put out a hundred records and then tell me.
2: Who's in that territory? I mean, Discord's in that territory, but who else?
3: That put out over a hundred records. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Revelation revelation yeah yeah i mean like the ones that i looked at like whether it was like revelation but they
2: they switched it up late
3: 90s for 50%. sure for sure and that's a lot of those that's the window that allowed bridge 9 to become bridge 9 so um we had in 2000 when american nightmare was you know started working when when i put out the first record they should have been on equal vision they ultimately were but like they went to equal vision and they respectfully said you know no and they They were able to do something with me. A lot of the labels that I looked to for hardcore in the 90s by 2000, I think, had just reached that natural point where, and I've reached too, where it's like, all right, I want to kind of mix things up a little bit, and it allowed Bridge Nine to just step in and sign all these great bands in this at this moment that, again, a year or two earlier would have gone in a bunch of different directions, Um, but we were able to kind of keep them all in, in. in one, one place. So, yeah. So again, talking about uh, momentum and opportunities um, opening and presenting themselves, that's really what allowed Bridge9 to, to, to grow really quickly.
2: I love that. Cause like, if you have a business plan from the jump, I think you're, you're boxed in. And, and I think you, you know, with energy and um, Polar Bear Club, you, you continued to explore and expand and again, it's all in the same family. Like I I think you, you kept the ethos all the way through, took some chances and I loved all of it.
3: (laughs) Awesome. No, thank you. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly artists that were even more commercial or, you know, have had greater opportunities that we either missed that boat or never considered them. But I mean, I've, I have no complaints about, you know, what we've put out. All
2: right. We're going to keep things rolling here. This is a special one. I think not only for us, but like, for everyone from the 2000s. Have Heart, The Things We Carry, August 2006. Backdrop, I lived in Massachusetts from 03 to 07. I went to Stonehill in um, Northeastern Brockton area. Uh, so I saw this whole era. And I think what gets lost with people not from Massachusetts or not in the Northeast is, in that era, in the, even, even 06, 07, you could see Have Heart in front of 100 people, 150 people. The big jump off did not happen until after the things we carry and the bulk of it. And you can probably attest to this was after they broke up after the club Lido show, but this was a special record, their debut full length. How did you, like, obviously they were Massachusetts born and bred. Like what drew you to have heart from the jump?
3: So funny story about have heart. I started the label as a teenager. Right. and. By the time I put out Heart's record, that was, I had been doing the label, I think, for 11 years. So I was, yeah. I was pushing 30. I was not the guy in the van anymore. You know, when, when you start a label, when you're, you know, a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of people that start labels, you know, in high school and college. And like, when you start a label at that age, you're the person in the van. You know, you're the one that's at every show um, and you're fully within the mix. But after a decade, you know, you're in a relationship. People start having kids. You know, you're, you're not just doing the label part-time anymore. Now it's like a full-time job or you have a full-time job and you're doing a label. So it's hard to always be out there. So I went from going to every show like three, four days a week sometimes to once every two weeks, a couple times a month. You know, like, so I wasn't the guy that was always in there. I was still putting out a lot of records and I was still very much in the mix in that respect but I wasn't always out at everything and, and have heart. I have I have gone on record as saying that I, I almost missed that one surprisingly because I, you know, they, they were doing cool stuff, but like we had a lot of stuff going on at the time. And I had a guy that was working for me doing mail order. And he had told me, he's like, Hey, you should check out this band, have heart. They're really good. And I might've even seen them at one point, but you know, it didn't, uh, no conversations were had at that, at that point. And then he came back to me and was like, Hey man, he's like, I left the demo on your, at your desk. Like, make sure you listen to that. It's like, it's really good. You got, you know, you should check them out. And I did. And so, you know, immediately I was like, dude, we, we need to work at this band, but it wasn't from the jump. I mean, it was, it took a minute for me to, you know, to, to even like sit down and, 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 uh, and have it, you know, absorb it, I guess. But I was very lucky. I mean, that band, that record is incredible. The, that band is incredible. If, if there's five bands that we've worked with, you know, that have written lyrics that have resonated with the, you know, the most people and, and like during their darkest times, that's a, that's patent and have heart. So that, that was a, a, an incredible album to, to work on. I mean, again, we didn't know how big it was going to be. I think we only pressed a thousand copies, you know, the first record, you know, the first pressing of it. So, uh, but it was a band that once that record came out, uh, it just didn't stop.
0: You kind of answered my question, but I was going to say, did you think that they would get as big as they got? Because I mean, I know of them uh, through Anthony from years ago, but he lived it in the moment. I heard about him after the fact, I listened to him, you know, a little bit today more to kind of get ready for this. But I was like, I can see why this went, you know, (laughs) went the way it did, but. Did, were you aware that it would get like that? Because it it got pretty fucking big.
3: Yeah, I, honestly, I I mean, I, I think when we pressed it, we we just thought it was a great record, but we we didn't think that it was going to be as you know. It's it's you, you, you don't always know until it's out there. So yeah, that was that was one that we you know just took off running, and we we're obviously I was excited to to be a part of it.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that must be hard to gauge, and especially with the physical the tangible product like represses are always in demand do you feel like you have to bow down to that or do you just kind of it is what it is it's out there if you got it you're lucky or do you feel like you have to eventually circle back
3: i mean we we definitely try to keep stuff in press but there's i mean we you know it's expensive to to press a record and if you have to press 10 of them it's it's prohibitive you know so like you know we have times where you have to make that choice of do i press a new record or do i repress an old record you know, I, I remember I read an interview with, uh, with, you know, Ian McKay and talking about Discord and how they had that, those same issues early on where, you know, you only have this finite amount of resources as a label to, to work with at any one time. And, I mean, we are an independently owned, just it's ourselves, it's our business. We don't have, like, parent company that just, like, gives you money whenever you want to expand. So you have to make these, de- these decisions. Like, do I put out a new band? Or do I keep repressing a uh, catalog? And you know, some things are no-brainers because you know, I mean, they've proven they're going to sell. So we try to, you know, focus on that. But we also, you know, you have a record where okay, you just sold a thousand copies. Now do you press another thousand copies? Because you might sell fifty of them and then it stops.
0: Yeah, so, true. Yeah, just, especially in that time frame, you just don't know.
3: Yeah, with a band like you know, a band like Have Heart or Defeater or Ceremony. We had these, you know. We knew, like, are we press it and we're gonna over the next six months we're gonna sell them and they'll be gone, and then we'll we'll do it again. But then you, you know, we have we'll have bands where you know we press that thousand copies, we sold them, and then you know we have them for the next seven years. So it's it's it's, it's a toss up.
1: It is like it's a tightrope because you also have to be. Conscientious of, well, we're not going to keep repressing this and just kind of burn everyone that was lucky to get the original copy. Right. Like every time I, I'm not going to name any bands right now, but like bands that just continue to put out different variants, it's like, bro, come on, man. Like, what are we doing here? It's not really limited.
3: Well, I, I, I do like how with vinyl, you can always, you can continue to change it, right? So, like, if you, if you got the first, you got the tour pressing, the record release show, you got the first press or like the first, you know, the, the mail order press, you got the, the tour, whatever, the tour press. I know with us, like we, when we do repress it, we obviously try to change it up change the color. So it's like, okay, that, that press came out, you know, the record came out in 2006, but that one came out in 2014 or something. That's actually something that i been meaning to go back to our discography and start updating the years of when pressings came out so that people will know when different colors came out.
0: Yeah. So it's always new, even though it's not, which is cool. And that can help you, obviously, if you're trying to do something different. Like, okay, you get the the first press hanger, you get the record release tour tour release, and then that color is dead and gone. We're on to the next yeah. one. That's I, I, that's obviously happened a ton over the last what ten years, maybe.
3: And we've we've had, from what I've seen with collectors, is it doesn't hurt the fact that you have it either the value or the you know the the what, it's, what the meaning of it. I know when we reissued uh, albums or records like the Project X EP, you know, I had a couple of collectors that got really mad at me at first because they thought I was going to be flooding the market with the Project X 7-inch, and now their original 7-inch was going to be worth less. And it really wasn't the case because now you have all these new people that have access to this record that maybe had only heard of it but had never seen it, and now they have a copy. But guess what? These people are like, well, this is cool, but I I want the original one now. And if you have more people that want the original one, supply and demand. So, you know, that, yeah, that makes sense. Worked, yeah. It worked in their favor.
2: So, Chris, the first, so I was a What Counts EP guy from the Think Fast days. You guys signed them. My first impression of New Have Heart off the things we carry was actually live. I have the flyer right here. For those visually, uh, visual listeners, it's a Ulrika Masonic Temple the first step hammer bros verse maintain half heart headlining fired up from Connecticut, six bucks, six bucks, get you in with a can of food. Yep. There might've been a hundred people there and they played the machinist for the very first time at this show. And so the drums come in and Pat's yelling and then the breakdown comes in. And I'm like, are they strife? Like what? So what was your <laughs> first impression hearing anything off the things we carry?
3: Oh man, I, I, I don't know if I have, if I remember exactly what my first impression was. I mean, it was, it's clear that a lot of bands uh, from that era were also looking to, to the 90s and looking to, to bands for inspiration. I definitely saw that a lot, which wasn't a bad thing. I mean, Strife was a great band. And I mean, it's, it's it, you know, if their influence lives on, that's not a bad thing. But yeah, I just, I, I remember they recorded, so Have Heart recorded that record, I believe, with Jim Siegel. And it was just a, a step up for their, you know, in terms of recording, and for them to be, you know, to have all this, to, you know, to have a studio like Jim's, uh, the Outpost Studio, uh, uh, to be, for him to be able to kind of do something with them was, it, everything was a step up. But yeah, I mean, what counts that that, that record's great. You know, everything that's that have Heart has done has, has been cool. But I think that was just like, a very large step up.
2: Like I said, in that era, even after I have a stack of flyers, we'll, we'll post them with this episode. But I have a stack of flyers of Have Heart even after this, like Cambridge Elks, Have Heart, Blacklisted, Shipwreck, Ceremony, Reign Supreme, Wolf Whistle, August 2007. If that show happened today, there'd be 2,000 people there. You know, it's just crazy. Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, how, how about their reunion show in 2019? Like, that's absolutely insane. That's the biggest hardcore show I've ever seen. I mean, that was a five-band bill to 9,000 people.
2: I went day one. I had a wedding to go to day two. Uh, the outdoor one. So I was at the indoor one, and even
1: that was surprising. Like there were scalpers galore online for the first yeah. day. Tuan's hardcore about hardcore. Collects every flyer and had a wedding the next day. Still, dude, that's yep. dedication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My wife uh,
2: thinks I have a problem.
0: No, hang on to all of it. Save it all.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, Chris, you talk you you talk about you know recording the Frank Turner stuff and and hanging on to it. I have bins of. Uh, eight millimeter digital high eight tapes. And my wife's like, What are you doing with that? And with this podcast, some of it's seen the light of day. So you never know. 20 That's years incre- later, 15 years later, it could see the, the light of well, day.
3: And the thing is, you film something 20 years ago, and at the moment, it's just like, Yeah, whatever, this is cool. But 20 years later, I mean, it could be a diamond. You know, like it's, it's just like such a cool thing. And it could be the only evidence that that ever existed. You know, and flyers, a, a lot of ways, a lot of ways are. Sometimes the only evidence that a show happened, and so I mean I keep totally. all of my flyers. I actually I went I did the crazy thing years ago and put them in in chronological order by month, so I can and, and, and by crazy. day. So it's yeah, like so yeah, I have yeah. like You're every flyer here, Chris. <laughs> Every flyer that I had kept, I put like I have a January you know folder, and then it's every show in order in January. So like if I need to find. I need to find a, a flyer, like a edge day. I know it's on 1017 or whatever. I just go to October, flip through, find it. There it is. Do you
2: have an Excel spreadsheet of every show you've ever been to? Cause I do.
3: Just <laughs> that's so. that's a level I wish that I had done because I mean, I don't it's remember. It's never
0: too late, sh- man. Dude, saying, not- Dude, <laughs> Dude, same. I'm trying to piece together the shit that I did when I was 19. It's not happening right now. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Especially for hardcore. Cause there's no, a lot of, in a lot of cases, there's no ticket stuff. Right. So you really do need to do that.
0: Or any yeah. of the smaller venues, right? They should venues, have been right?
1: stubs for yeah. those shows. Come yeah. on,
3: that's why you, you keep the keep the flyer. You know, I mean, yeah. and again, so like on our discography, I've been going through and adding flyers from shows, and you know, um, to the to this discography, and I, you know, I don't always know what year these shows were, but if you have the if you have the day of the week, you know, you, you can go online and Google it and say, okay, this happened in 1998, and then and then put it in in order.
2: I know that's the thing. People post uh, old show flyers on instagram but they never have the the year and i'm like is this a reunion that i why why didn't that happen
0: you know there are tiktok (laughs) accounts devoted to people finding like what game was happening in the background of some tv show (laughs) this feels like something like that we could pull that off with the knowledge in this room i'm sure (laughs) we could pull that off
2: all right we get one more and uh we probably said it on this episode but we're all from maine probably know where this is going nate lives out in socal he's uh he's uh you know he left us here tony and i are still in maine we're gonna hit you with outbreak you make us sick nice. and actually this era i think was my personal exposure to bridge nine like that was yeah and it's funny like if you talk to people from maine even during when outbreak was making their hay like pausey numbers oh four go look at that video on youtube like that's all you need to know about Outbreak in this era. Most people from Maine have never heard of Outbreak. Like they are probably the biggest touring outfit from Maine outside of Sparks the Rescue, which was like a, you know, emo, Screamo, Fearless Band. Uh, we had Rustic Overtones, which was, you know, whole different genre. But they didn't break out, no pun intended, break out like this. But Outbreak in that moment, if you lived it in those rooms, was special. So how did you? How did you find out about them? Like, do you remember?
3: So there, the You Make a Sick record was Bridge Nine's 48th release. And that came out in 2004, I believe. I was going up to Portland for shows. I mean, I, I, you know, from the 90s into the early 2000s, I, I would go up. I mean, American Nightmare's first show was in Portland. And that was in February of 2000. So I was up there a bunch you know, everyone in that band was, was pretty active. I, I, I can't remember which conversation or where it started. And I'm actually, again, going through and like going through my files and trying to recreate how records happened so that, you know, for example, in our discography, I have Bridge Nine's third release. I've included all the letters to and from the vocalist of the band uh, before the record came out. So I have That's all cool. my original, all the letters he sent me, I have, and he had the letters that I sent him. And this record came out in 1998. And so I scanned them all and I've put them in chronological order. I think I'm missing a couple, but I have them in order. There's like 10 of them. And it's like, hey, the first, le- the first letter was, hey, I, you know, my name's Mark from this band Proclamation. I grabbed one of your flyers at a show. I wanted to send you my demo. And then I have a letter to him saying, "Hey, your demo's really cool, but I'm not really looking to do anything right now because I just put out a record and I, I have no money." And then he writes back, "Oh, that's cool. Totally understand, you know." And like over the course of over a year, we're like writing. I was letters gonna say a year's gone by. Yeah, it's a- easily a year. I think we started writing to each other in like I don't know October of '96, and then the record came out in uh, early '98. So it was like a year and a half from him sending his demo to me, putting the record out, but, like, kind of going back and forth. And so, like, I'm trying to recreate that. I can't remember offhand exactly uh, how things played out with, with Outbreak. I just remember that, you know, that band was just, like, undeniable. You know, it, it, it just was, um, I don't know. I just remember seeing them and being like, holy shit, like, this band's, you know, obviously they're cool and they're fierce, so let's just do something. So that was, yeah, average Nine's 48th release.
1: When you said you were, you were coming up to Portland, what venues were, you, were these at? Was it the asylum or was it? So. you remember? Some of them were in like churches and halls. Okay.
3: I don't remember. I know, I know American Nightmare Show was at some random church. You know, some at the asylum. I'm trying to think of.
2: Were you there for the zoots days?
3: Oh, zoots. Maybe, <laughs> maybe once
2: we just I think, missed that era i, yeah, I wish we were yeah. i wish we were like 42 right
3: now and yeah, yeah. 37 <laughs>
2: 38 39 yeah yeah
3: let's thing i'm four, i'm 47 so like i was i, I definitely had a chance to, to hit a few of those but yeah for, i mean Maine's had a cool scene and you know what's really cool is chris likovich is going back and putting so much of this stuff online now i'm sure you've seen his oh, posts yeah. about yeah it's great i mean maine has such a cool uh hardcore history that I, you know, I think it's easy to overlook. There's uh, bigger cities, you know, and they get get more of the, uh, the bandwidth, but there's been a lot of cool shit and a lot of cool bands that have come out of there.
2: He's posted some of the stuff I took, like, 15, 20 years ago on there, which has been really cool. So, like, there was a Bane wake-up call FC5 tour that rolled through South Paris, Maine, which is, ironically, <laughs> right. where my wife is from. So... I remember the first time, it's a funny story, backstory for all you listeners out there. When I first met my wife's parents, it's about an hour and a half north of here. We're driving to her parents' house and there's a, there's a church in a VFW hall, like a mile approaching her parents' house. And I go to my, my soon-to-be wife here. I've been in that basement and I've been in that VFW hall. And she's <laughs> like, how? What? What?
0: And she didn't run, so yeah it's she not didn't a run.
2: and so I show her the videos, and she's like, "What the fuck were
0: you doing?" In
2: the I'm like, I have evidence, but yeah. yeah, maine's cool. A lot of uh you know, Kathy at the Cave up in Bucksport had a great thing going on. Chris yep. link, I've definitely seen a, you know resurgence with with that page, and he's booking shows in Portland.
3: That new American ever show that they're doing in June, I mean, sold out like an yeah. hour right.
2: We're going. We Two are, of us are going.
0: Yep, we are going. <laughs> had a conversation about that today, actually, with a coworker. He's like, "You going to that?" I was like, "Yep." We are Nate, Nate. Uh,
2: you don't know this, but I bought you a ticket, so no pressure. Ooh. The San Diego to Main Fly flight, home, baby. We'll, we'll ah. be worth it. <laughs> and ah. the
0: space. If for anybody that isn't aware, the space is what a couple hundred people. Yeah, or
3: yeah, three hundred yeah, three.
0: Yeah, and it's tiny, and it's an. It's had some awesome fucking shows there. Like so much stuff comes through there, all genres. Uh, and if you hit it right, like I think we're seeing Bob Mould there too, right, Twan, in October? We are, yeah. Yeah, so like you just never know what you're going to get there. So I've seen hip-hop shows there. We'll see hardcore shows there finally. Like it's it's pretty cool.
3: Yeah, but to your point with with Outbreak, I mean, Ryan O'Connor, the vocalist, I mean, he was he was just a dude that was always out there grinding and promoting and doing stuff, whether I think it was by booking shows or putting out records. So he was just somebody that was always in the mix. So you know, when you're when when you're really pushing yourself, putting yourself out there, you know, people take note.
2: Yeah, I remember seeing X O'Connor X on flyers.
3: <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they were,
2: sadly, I, I think they're a band that's kind of gotten lost in time. You know, if you lived it in the moment, they were one of the titans, you know, I don't know where they were in that Posi numbers lineup. I didn't go that year. The videos are on YouTube, go check them out. But you'd be hard pressed to get a band to get a bigger reaction than they got in Oh four. And, and sadly, like I look today, they have probably 5,000 monthly listeners. So the legacy definitely lives on, but man, in that era, untouchable. And that's not main bias. That is not main bias. They were untouchable.
0: Yeah. Maybe a little
3: bit, maybe Maybe. just
0: a tiny little bit,
3: (laughs) but they, they got out there and they toured and that's what really makes a difference. You know when you know, there's a lot of bands that that don't really put in that work and they they went everywhere and they 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 really busted their ass so
2: yeah you you saw at new direction with champion the answer Oh yeah yeah when champion the answer came out from west coast yeah we went down or maybe it was exit 23 at the time i can't remember but see that's another
1: show where like there's no stub so i need the flyer as a reminder it's it doesn't exist i've looked oh, it's in my damn. spreadsheet though did you know? uh, did some kind of
3: hate play that show
1: I don't
2: know. That was the, the
3: one in 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 San Diego, or oh no, the one
2: in um that New Direction. Okay. in uh, April. Yeah, yeah. I miss I miss some kind of hate. I didn't. I never saw them.
0: Let's just jump into what's next for you with with Bridge Nine in the store, all that stuff, and we can talk about that yeah. for a few minutes.
3: Yeah, yeah. So so I uh, obviously, oh. since COVID and the move, what Bridge Nine has been doing has switched up a little bit. Our focus was. Moving and building out this space, it was a much bigger project than I think I ever really gave myself. Like I I they always say things take twice as long, cost twice as much. And it's true. And it was uh when I committed to it, I didn't realize how big of a deal it was gonna be. But um, so I had to kind of put everything on pause. We weren't signing new bands, we weren't really putting out, you know, we weren't doing a lot of represses. Uh we put out a couple of records here and there, but it was just to kind of keep things going. Now that the store is open, the warehouse is open, we're starting to have bands play here. Um, we're just trying to, to kind of get back into our groove. So we have, we just signed a new band. Uh, we haven't announced them yet, but, you know, it's uh, it's kind of more in the vein of like the Defeater and Have Art uh, kind of side of things that I'm really excited about. We just got a vinyl release in our, our first, you know, brand new record in a while with this band Roll Call, you know, featuring a member of, of Outbreak. So that was uh, cool to finally see kind of new projects coming in. Um, I don't think we will be the bridge nine of 10 or 15 years ago where we have 20 new records coming out every year. I think that pace is unsustainable, but if I could do six or eight new records a year, something new coming out every couple months, months, um, wow. I'd be stoked. That's a
1: lot. That's yeah. A so lot. that's,
3: that's, that's what I'd like to do. I mean, right now it's probably going to be two, three, four, five, you know, for the moment. But if we could do one every other month or so, uh, just so that we're—I don't ever want to be a catalog label. I don't want to rest on what we did in the past. I always want to kind of uh, continue to explore and try and find new bands. So that's the hope. Just put out a handful of new records a year, maintain uh, our space as a place where people can, you know, build community, whether it's seeing bands or coming and buying a record we put out, or putting out, you know, coming and buying a record that we uh, are just helping distribute for somebody else. So.
2: And so you're down in Beverly, Mass, the new location.
3: Yep. Yes, yeah, so we're one town over from Salem. We're about 35 minutes north of Boston. It's right on the commuter line, so people coming from Boston, if they don't have a car, they can hop on the train and and get here pretty easily.
0: And we'll link to the website in the show notes, so you can get there online too, right? Like that's uh, you get the store going that way too. Cool.
3: Yeah, I mean the store is open Wednesday through Sunday, and check the hours, you know, on the on the website. But um, it's been great, I and mean, we have. Uh, We have this guy, Gabe, who uh, can talk circles around me and with respect to music, you know, he's 23 and, and, and just like the level of knowledge that he has when it comes to music is incredible. And he'll sit there and talk for an hour with people, which has been very cool. I get to, you know, I'm here every day, so I'm always talking to people about bands. We actually, the band that we designed was like one of, I think, five bands ever that we've just kind of, that has uh, randomly come to us. And he was just a customer in the store and he said, Hey, you know, can I send you some music? And I was like, yeah, sure. Amazing. Go for it. I love that. We, yeah, We ended up signing him. So,
1: so cool. I mean, I feel like this era and what you're doing and what the guys are doing at sound or uh, Program program and sound is it's like a resurgence. It reminds me of like the early nineties, like very DIY and, you know, fuck the, you know, the mainstream model, like we can do this. And I think everyone thought, especially in the heyday of the pandemic, like tactile, physical contact going to stores were going to be obsolete we all thought like oh these are all going to go away and it's going to get shut down well you proved that's not the case which is really beautiful so we're stoked for what you're doing man
3: well during the, during COVID, we were just stuck in our warehouse i mean and we were already in a place that was hard to get to and that nobody really knew we were there we were there for 14 years and there was no sign i mean we didn't even have a sign in fact it was a nightmare for like anytime there was a new ups driver uh not just because of us i mean there was 13 buildings in the complex we were in, we were one of three businesses on one floor of three floors. So like, if you're trying to learn that route would be an absolute nightmare. And for us, I mean, we would do events where we would invite people in. I think around our 20th anniversary, we had uh, punk rock flea markets and we'd had some bands come in and do more kind of stripped down acoustic performances or we had, and we had a comedy night, things that brought people in and, and kind of, you know, fosters that, that level of community. And that's what I wanted during COVID. I was just like, I I don't like being, you know, stuck in this corner. I want to engage with people. And I said, I want to be the guy that's out in front of the store, sweeping the sidewalk. You know, I want to say, you know, like talk to neighbors and like, and be, you know, uh, a part of the community. And I mean, I might regret some of that at some point, you know, but I think so far it's been awesome. We've been open for seven or eight months and, you know, we're meeting people. I had a guy, this, this guy, Paul, that helped us when, you know, when we were building out the space, I had to uh, rely on a lot of people volunteering and helping us because there was no way that we were going to be able to do this on our own and Just one example um, was this guy, Paul, who helped us do some tile work in our bathroom and he was a guy that lived down you know not down the street but I think one town over in his forties and reached out to me and said hey i want I want to put out a couple of records on my own. I need someone to talk to about doing a label would you?" mentor me on some level and give me some feedback by the way i'm a tile guy i can help you with your your build out and nice. so he came and helped us with the floor you know in in the bathroom and did some demo work and he's a like cool student and and i we had never met i mean we we were, we lived within miles of each other we have a dozen or two mutual friends and for whatever reason had never interacted with each other and so just little things like that, um, have you know, building the space out and connecting with people that want to see it succeed has been very, very cool.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, that's that's great. You'd like to be part of that neighborhood too, and that's and that's what this will feel like. It's a little better than being in that. You got to go down, take three lefts, go up yeah. two flights of stairs, and and there's no sign, but hopefully you knock on the right door. And yeah, this is this is the way to go.
3: Yeah, I mean, anytime someone would visit us at our old space, I'd have to go out in front and take a photo of the building. And then oh, set it to wow. Oh, wow. so it's like, wow. look Paid for this stone building. It's got a green door, you know, like it was, it was, and people, you know, there was 14 or 13 buildings in this complex and they all kind of look the same. So people will be driving in circles. And now we're on a main street, right? I mean, everybody that drives to Beverly, Massachusetts goes by our store. So it's, you know, not that everyone stops in, but they know where we are. So, you know, it's not like we're off the beaten path. We're right there. So, I, I mean, I pinched myself. It's wild for us to think that we have this pool of a space that's so accessible, you know, in 2023.
2: And Chris, what you did during the pandemic, which was literally give a play-by-play of the build-out, was fun. I'm like, what wall is Chris painting today? It was, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: you know, it's so you know, So, my daughter, I have, a, I have a 12-year-old or 11-year-old daughter, and she would I come home and she'd be like, so dad, what, uh, what did you scrape or sand or paint today? And, you know, kind of like making fun of me for it. But I mean, that was the reality. We got to the point where, again, when I had to tell the bank what I thought it was going to cost us to renovate the space, I just pulled that number out of a hat. I'm not a contractor. I don't, you know, I just, it sounds like a round number. Let's try and work with that. And of course that money went very quickly and it was just doing the things that Were behind the scenes. It was making the building ADA accessible. It was putting all the fire stuff that you need, whether it's the pull, you know, kind of handles or the uh, strobe lights or, you know, all these things that were behind the scenes. All the electrical uh, conduit, anything electrical had to be replaced. So by the time that was done, um, and we ran out of money, anything cosmetic, anything demo, basically fell on me. And I, I have to give a shout out to Larry Kelly. He's a gentleman that has been helping me almost daily on a weekly basis since the jump. You know, when 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 you commit to something like this, I mean, it was, he could see it in my face, you know, and I didn't know him that well. We had met each other and had a lot of mutual friends, but this is somebody that had come up in the Boston Harbor scene, you know, two generations before I, and it was just an amazing carpenter and lived on the street and heard about the space and just wanted to see it. And then I think he saw me before we opened or before, right after we had gotten the keys, it was just like, Oh, Jesus, you need help. And has been with me ever since, uh, kind of helping guide things and making sure that it, it's done in a way that is affordable, but also nicer than I could do on my own. And, and so Larry Kelly, uh, you know, I will, so in my last days be shouting out, uh, you know, that dude, but yeah, basically I had to learn how to do a lot of this stuff because, you know, that's the only, I mean, the only way we could make it work was by coming in at night at nine o'clock after I put my daughter to bed, come back here and paint for the next four hours and do it again. And then again and then again. And so like, it, that's, that's, that's what it let us make this happen.
2: It's that sweat equity. You can't fake yeah. that. and it, it has to be rooted in passion and, um, you know, clearly you're a blueprint for that. So Chris, we're going to get you out of here. We appreciate all this conversation. I mean, these are questions we've had for, I mean, some of these records date back almost 20 years and we've had, uh, you know, we've enjoyed the records, we've lived them and to have some of the backstory has been very fulfilling. So I hope the listeners really enjoy this.
3: Well, thank you for coming up and saying hello at the New Found Lori Show. Thank you for for supporting you know my efforts and and the records and the bands that I've worked with over the years. Obviously, I mean that I, I'm not doing this in a vacuum. I need people to 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 be into what we're doing. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for for having me on here.
0: Hell yeah, dude! And uh, when's that band show?
2: Uh, I don't know, but we're going night one. It's right, a, so I'm it's thinking
0: maybe we go a little early and drive oh, down June. on the way in.
3: That's June 17th, right? June 17th. Yep.
0: Yeah. Cool.
2: There you go. Uh, Beverly, Mass. We might make a little pit stop. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. I think it's gonna be a busy I think it's gonna be a really busy weekend. I, a lot of people have been like, Hey, I'm gonna be in the Boston area. We're gonna come up to check out Bridge Nine. So well, I'll be here. I mean, we're gonna have a lot of stuff going on that weekend. So I'm psyched.
2: I love that they're like casually like, oh well, Modern Life is War couldn't do it. Here's killing time. You know, I'm like, all right. I'm 37 and I've never had a chance to see them. So I'm in. Nice.
0: I'm excited. And yeah, I mean, you might you might see us pop in and say hello for a minute. Well, yeah, so.
3: please, if you're in the area, please come by and okay. say hello.
0: Hell yeah. Thanks, Chris.
3: No problem. Thank you, guys.
0: Thank you for listening to Patio Slave. We are at Patio Slave on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all of the places that you can find us on social media. Facebook, Patio Slave Podcast. YouTube, Patio Slave Podcast there. Email us at podcast at gmail.com. And hey, if you want to become a supporter, click on the link at the bottom of the episode and give us a dollar, give us five bucks. It keeps the lights on, keeps us going. We really appreciate that stuff. Thank you.